The Laughter Permitted Podcast is brought to you by Ally. Do it right. Well, hello, sunshines. Welcome to Laughter Permitted. I'm Julie Fowdy. I'm Lynn Ozawi. You know, Dope Village, Lynn and I pride ourselves on being capital J <laughs> journalist. But our guest today is on a level of journalist that we both respect so damn much. Yeah, it's not just capital J journalists. It's like all caps, double italics, underline 800 point font J journalist. <laughs> That's right. We had the pleasure of spending time with the incomparable writer, reporter, author, human Sally Jenkins. <laughs> Jenks, as I call her. And I don't know if you all in the Dope Village have a writer who, when they write an article, you think, I need I need to read that. Like, I need to mm. read that right now. Well, that is Jenkins for me. She got, She just cuts straight to the heart of the matter and literally slays dragons <laughs> in the best of ways. And Sally Jenkins has been a columnist and feature writer for the Washington Post for more than 20 years. Before that, she was with Sports Illustrated. She was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2020 and in 2021 was named the winner of the Associated Press Red Smith Award for Outstanding Contributions to Sports Journalism. She is the author of 12 books, four of them New York Times bestsellers, including the number one bestseller, Sum It Up written with legendary basketball coach Pat Summit, And get this, in 2005, Sally became the first woman inducted into the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Hall of Fame. The woman is just so damn smart and fabulous, and I'm lucky enough to call her a friend. So get comfortable listening. It's Sally on Four Cups of Coffee Jenkins. <clears throat> ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One. Kick Jenks. Let's go, Jenks. Come on. <laughs> Sally, the first thing we do on the podcast is yep. we set the scene. So, okay. darling, this all comes back from me shooting with the 99ers film. Mm -hmm. The camera, I used to say to all the gals, set the scene. Set the so, scene. set the scene, where you're at, what you're doing, all that good stuff. I'm sitting at my little desk in Sag Harbor, New York, where I spend most of my, my working life. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm on my fourth cup of coffee. And, and <laughs> Look um, out. Let's see. I brushed my teeth today, which is good by this hour of the day. Like, you know, yeah, I completed my really toilet. Good. Do you have your slippers still on? My slippers, I, I I do not dare show you the bottom, you know, of my wardrobe. <laughs> but uh, I, have, I have sneakers on. I do have sneakers on. I have sneakers and sweatpants on. Um, but uh, no, it's just, uh, this is my desk. This is where, you know, the spell happens. The magic oh, happens. the spell. I love the that. spell, the spell, the writer spell. But I'm getting ready to go to Dallas uh, day after tomorrow for the women's final four. Yes. So. Yeah. I think in all fairness for the four cups of coffee context, you are in the midst of covering the women's tournament as we're yes. recording this. Yes. And so we had games until 1130 last night, wonderful games till 1130 last night. And then the coaches got up and did the winning coaches all did press conferences this morning. So I've been sitting here on Zoom uh, talking to women's basketball coaches and listening to them and uh, trying to get my own travel organized to get to Dallas for the big event. So just what you need at this moment is another thing in a uh, podcast. I always so the need, fact that you were like, yes, I'm I'm here for you. I, I need more Thank Julie you. Fowdy in my life at uh, all, whatever the circumstances. So. No one needs that, Jenks. You know that better. <laughs> you know that better than most. <laughs> No, it's true. We need we need more time together. We do. So, S Sally, when I was really searching for words of how I would describe your writing, 
because you were a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize in 2020, of course you were, uh, they actually almost got it right. Here's what they wrote. They said, <laughs> for columns that marshal a broad knowledge of history and culture to remind the sports world of its responsibility to uphold basic values of equity, fairness, and tolerance. And here's where it's almost right, because it's not just remind people when we talk about you and your writing, it's literally you make us feel it from like the depth of our bones. <laughs> I club people over the head with the point. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, like your writing is so soulful and visceral. Literally, after I read an article you've written, I'm like, I'm in whatever it is you wrote on. I'm all in. Ah. I, I I love my work. That's all I can say. Yeah, I love I was the job. Say, like, have you always been like that? Where does that come from? No, it's a, it's a learned skill. I mean, you know, I I I started doing this in my very early twenties. I was working in college practically. I mean, I literally started writing sports writing in college, and uh, I'm 62 now. So you know, 40 years uh, of experience. Anybody gets better uh, at it, <laughs> and it's a craft like any other. I mean, writing a column putting together 800 to 1000 words in an essay it's a it's a learned skill you know anyone can learn to do it and um um you get you get more confident uh in yourself and your beliefs as you get older mm. uh don staley was talking about that earlier today you know you sort of live your own truth uh <laughs> you live a little closer to your own you know spine uh oh, year, I love by, that. year by year by year you know you you stand more straight in front of your own backbone every year that you get older hopefully and um so, uh, you know, I've been doing it a long time is the short answer. So I like that. You live a little closer to your own spine. You stand a little taller to your own backbone. Ooh. Ooh. That's yeah. good. So, you know, you, you, you're not as afraid of people and consequences, uh, right? You know, in your, in your advancing decades, hopefully. How do you craft a column? How does that come about? Uh, you have to start with what's bugging you. <laughs> you know, you start. <laughs> so true. You That's start amazing. Really bothering you, and and a lot of times you don't know, and that means people may not know either. But but if it's bugging you, it's probably bugging somebody else. Yeah. And so then you go to that and you press down on it, and you go, "What's really oh, bugging me? And what do I that. think is bugging other? It, 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 that must be what's bugging other people too." And you try to get the bottom of it, and you start scratching in the dirt, you know, at, on that spot, you know, and you try to find what's what's buried down under there, no matter the topic, whether it's, you know, so, you know, when it comes to topics like, you know, women's basketball, the, the big fight a couple years ago over resources for the women's basketball game, um, you know, it was infuriating, but you can't just write a column that says, I'm really angry about this. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to write a column that tries to explain to people why they're feeling quite so deeply on the subject. Mm. And I think that the answer in that case was, and it's the anniversary of the NCAA women's tournament and um, and a lot of progress has been made. Um, the games were all on network. The big games were all on ABC finally. And um, they're having record ratings, record attendance. And the answer a couple of years ago, the reason why people were so very angry was because it had been going on so very long. Um, and so I, I ended up writing a column that just basically said, I am tired of this subject. Yeah. I am tired of these arguments. And that hit the button, you know, with everybody else too. So, um, so that's where you start is, uh, is what's, bo what's bothering you. And then you try to explain it and explore it as best you can in a amusing and untedious way for the reader. Well, that's the part that I love the, the, the thing yeah. is, I mean, something that bugs you is, is a great starting point, but then to be able to leap off, as you do in uh, such an intellectual and ethical way. Like I always think you get to the morality of the issue right away. And, and that always astounds me. I, like that I haven't even realized it. I'm like, oh yes, I hadn't even thought of it that way. Like your Title IX article on the 50th anniversary of Title IX, you have this, the, you say, I'm gonna read it right here. You say, uh, how is it that the law works so well? How did it become so uncontainable? Because its opponents were thinking way too small. Title IX didn't lay waste <laughs> to men's athletic programs. Title IX laid waste to everything. It laid waste to the ideas, to ideas, men's ideas of what women were capable of, but most importantly, women's ideas about themselves. And basically, 
You say, when you cure the perception of emotional frailty and physical incompetence in a young woman, you kill the idea there are some things she is constitutionally unfit to do. I was like, Damn. yes. Damn. Right. And so, and, and that applies to, so you also alter father's ideas of what their daughters can do, mm-hmm. which was probably as important as anything. You know, I'll never forget one day walking around my hometown of Fort Worth, Texas, and I saw a guy in his front yard playing catch with his daughter who was fast pitching a softball, um, you know, so hard at her old man that it almost knocked him over backwards on the lawn. And I thought, you know, there, that, there it is. That's, that's title nine, you know, that's what's so great about it. And, um, and yeah, I mean, title nine, people think way too small about that law. It's really the closest thing to an equal rights amendment yep. that ever passed in this country. It, it is the ERA. Yeah. Um, and 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 it's such a popular um, law as well. It's one of the great pieces of equal rights legislation in, in American history, really, if you think about it. And 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 I think men appreciate it today almost as deeply, maybe as deeply as as women do. It's it. There's a lot of great uh, male defenders of Title IX now. Um, you know, we're not just fighting. Um, you know, a half a battle. We we've got great male allies, which it's that's about time. And it's really, that's been really, really important. So, um, speaking of, yeah, I mean, you know, crafting those columns, um, it can be a lot of fun, but it has to be the morality. Uh, I think that the main thing about any sort of opinion piece is I read a great piece of advice once, and I'm going to forget the source. It may come to me later, but, uh, someone, a great critic once said that the job is not just to praise and blame, but to diagnose and distinguish. Praise and blame are really, really easy. And it's like you take a big old baseball bat. You know, you, anyone can hit yeah. you with a baseball bat. Yeah. Diagnosis and distinguish is the really mm-hmm. great part of the job. And it's the the hardest part of the job. But it's the that's where a really good opinion piece is, really good essay, really good persuasive writing comes from, is the diagnosis and the distinguishing. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's the hardest thing, I imagine, too, to get to. It's easy, like you said it's easy to just swing away and disrupt. But. Yeah. And that's, that's where you have to dig because you have to dig mm-hmm. into your own feelings, other people's feelings. You have to read a lot around the subject. And, you know, my dad, who was a hall of fame sports writer, he gave me the, maybe the best piece of advice I ever got. He said, he said, look at the prevailing opinion or the mainstream thinking on any issue and then turn it around and look at the dead opposite and ask yourself if there isn't something smarter in the opposite point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times there really, really is, you know, and uh, and that that strategy will serve you really well in the diagnosis and distinguish part, because you have to get pretty dispassionate to do that. Yeah. Right. You have to set aside your own yeah. knee jerk judgment um, and right. baseball bat, you know, inclination uh, to to just swing a bat at a really low hanging you know, big fat apple. You you have to look at the opposite point of view and ask yourself, am I am I wrong? Is there something smart on the other side of this? That'll lead you into some real logical uh, mazes too. I mean, that it's not easy, you know. Um, I mean, I'll give you one example. So so we're 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 in a situation today. I mean, this is this is very tough stuff, very complicated, tricky stuff. But we're in a situation today where people scream bloody murder um, over performance enhancing drugs, right? Particularly when you give them to very young people, okay? We're also in a situation where um, a lot of governors in states are deeply unpopular for wanting to pass laws that might prohibit administering puberty blockers, right? Mm -hmm. To, To adolescent children. No one is putting those two things together and asking the ethical questions about each of those things, right? Mm-hmm. So on the on, you know what I'm saying? Like we go crazy if a figure skater, a Russian figure skater has been administered a substance. Mm-hmm. And yet and yet there are people on the liberal side of the equation who think it's okay to give adolescents puberty blockers. Mm-hmm. So I'm uncomfortable with both of them. Mm-hmm. Right. I it, So if anyone who has clarity on these things is probably treading in baseball bat territory mm-hmm. instead of understanding mm-hmm. this is really, really complicated stuff. We have right. not nearly thought it through closely enough. 
it sounds like you're comfortable with the murkiness and wading through the murkiness. Yeah, I like the murkiness. And sometimes I don't know is the best answer. Right. Uh, I I mean, everyone in this day and age is so hesitant to say, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Or which drives me nuts. They consider it a point of weakness, which 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 is why. I value, and I see this in a lot of female leaders, the best female leaders who say, I don't know, tell me more. I need to learn more, yeah. right? Well, that's why, you, that's, so, that's why you and me love Billie Jean King, right? Yeah, exactly. Is she not the most inquisitive person yeah. like you've almost ever met? So curious about everything. And we'll say straight up, she'll, she'll text me all the time. Hey, I need some background on you know, this team, yeah. this issue, when it's soccer related. Yeah, all the time. I need to learn more. Tell me more. Can you call me? Wow. It's amazing. Right. But it's seen in today's society sometimes as a, as a point of weakness rather than, sure. I think, um, a point of strength. Um, speaking of your dad, how proud, I know you were very close, but in, yeah. in, in going back to that moment, watching the, the dad and daughter playing, you know, tossing the ball, how proud he must have been to watch you in your career blossom uh, I know he passed in 2019, but to yeah. to see you doing, you know, what he's done his entire life and doing it so well also. He was really proud. Uh, it, it, we, we loved working together. We, we spent a lot of good time uh, in press rooms and at events and stuff. And, um, you know, he was he was a great coach father. Right. He was the classic um you know, he let me learn a lot of stuff on my own. He never pushed things on me. Um, like the closest he came is he would leave something on my bedside table to read, you know. Um, but he, he just was, uh, he was he was a, a, a show by example. Um, you know, he wrote late into the night. Uh, he always told me he loved his work and you'd be really, really lucky to love your job the way he loved yeah. his job. Um, work was a value, you know. Enjoying your work was a value. Mm-hmm. Um you know, all that stuff. He, he, yeah, he was, a, and he was very proud, but more, more importantly, we just, we had so much fun yeah. being in the same field together. And, um, you know, it, when he died, I mean, I really felt like I don't know who to impress now, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know who to try to impress, uh, because I wrote, I wrote a lot to impress him. Really? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Aww. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And we disagreed. I mean, I mean, he could, we couldn't have disagreed more on some things uh, topically, but he was always proud of the effort, I think. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, going back to the bravery required to, to, to take some of the stands you take, because, and you, and you said it's a consequence of having confidence as you grow older as well and writing for as long as you had. But if you have some young writers out there or journalists who, you know, have opinions and strong opinions... How, how do you, what advice do you give them on trusting that they can be brave? You know, I think, um, I, I think you learn to trust uh, your own fingerprints and your own senses on certain issues. The advice I always give to younger writers is, you know, let your, let your ears and your eyes um, and your other senses do the reporting for you. I mean, you have to be a great shoe leather reporter. You can't make enough phone calls you always, you know, that last little bit of shoe leather reporting that you do or the last block you walk is when you find that last little thing that can really put a story over the top. But also, um, you know, your own impressions of things are incredibly, that's what gives a piece soul, which is a word you used a little earlier, you know, like if there's, if there's some soul in your work, it's coming from, um, you know, your own heart and your own experience. And so, um, a lot of times, young kids, younger people in the business, they're busy taking notes, they're busy reporting, they're busy following precepts. Um, but sometimes, you know, just let the thing impress itself on you and 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 just write down what you yourself are experiencing. And that's a form of reporting as well. Mm. And, um, and so I try to tell younger writers that your writing is like your fingerprints, you know, um, your own fingerprints. You, Other people may have written this subject, but you haven't, mm-hmm. you know, your impressions of it haven't been written yet. So I tell Candace Buckner that all the time. She's a, you know, she's a great columnist for us. And she's, she's in her first couple of years of doing the job. 
And she'll say, well, it's been written so much. And I'm like, mm. not by you. Not by you, it hasn't. <laughs> right? Oh, uh, wow. What's so magnificent about your writing is how you touch our senses. Is that something you are cognizant of? Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, TV is great. I mean, it's, mer- it, look, high def is miraculous. Television coverage is miraculous. And it gets better and better all the time. But it can't put you in Wembley Stadium, right, Jules? No. <laughs> I mean, the personal experience of being in Wembley right. Stadium and seeing how steep the, the stadium is or, yep. you know, a, a curve at Daytona, like how steep the curve at Daytona is or, you know, how, what it smells like at the Kentucky Derby. You know, that like the senses, TV, that's the one impasse between television, mm-hmm. live television and the written word, the newspaper, the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um there's still a screen between you and the event, and a writer a writer can get through that screen. You that just reminds me of your your um, article on live golf that you yeah. <laughs> so good. That's not a diagnose and distinguish column. That that's a baseball bat right there. That was a swing away. <laughs> that's gotta be fun sometimes. Oh, it was so good. The airborne. The airborne toxic event called Live Golf is slowly dissipating, and soon all that will be left is the mere faint scent of its portable toilets. That was your lead. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. No, I mean, some, some subjects deserve the baseball bat. Don't, don't <laughs> oh, that one does, for sure. That one was so good. Okay, I've I've one more journalism nerding out because you talk about the baseball bat, but you also have such nuance. And where I where I caught that and just was had such admiration for it was uh, an article you wrote after the women's national team achieved equal pay with U.S. Soccer, and you wrote. Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, Kristen Press, and their teammates, like so many other women who hazard a pay discrimination complaint against a powerful employer, were treated as if they had, had imagined the slights and the financial slights of hand. And reading how you use slights, like that is just... Well, I mean, that's a topic that, that I go back to, to Julie on. I mean, you know, it's it's very hard to sit here and write these subjects. It's hard to tamp down the anger that results from the fact that, um, you know, I covered Julie and her teams uh, in World Cups and Olympic medals. And, you know, and I know what they were making back then. And the idea that it's taken this long to win that case, you know, I mean, you know, I can remember talking to, to you know, Julie Foudy's and Mia Hams and um, ab- about waitresses pay, you know, uh, I mean, literally, you guys were paid you know, like waitresses, right? Mm-hmm. And you were just supposed to be happy to mm-hmm. have the bus, to have the meal money, mm-hmm. to get to, uh, you know, to get a, you know, a plane ticket to go someplace and play soccer. And, um, you know, I, I, I was just, it, the whole idea of treating this as a charitable endeavor, when forever, as, as we're learning, it's been a gigantic latent audience uh loaded with with money for whoever was smart enough to come along and cultivate that audience in any serious way. And, you know, we've all been saying for years, look, this is a a absolutely seismic cultural shift waiting to happen. And um, and then, you know, you 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 see the Rose Bowl and what happened in the Rose Bowl and you go, okay, here it is. And yet it takes 20 more more years, years? 20, 20. No, 22. Yeah, 22, 22 more years? years. Exactly, I know. I was a young woman when I covered your yeah, team, yeah. you know? And now I'm edging towards Social Security. <laughs> and I just, yeah, you know, I and know. it's like, are guys, are, are these guys that stubborn and that stupid? And the answer is, you bet they are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, here's but another line. Really you, here's another line I love. For so long, male sports bureaucrats have acted as though women's sports is a blackmail concession to social engineering. <laughs> Yeah, that's like that's but they really it. do that's feel that it. way. About it. I mean, yes, they really do uh, feel that way. About it. I mean, there's members of Congress that still feel that way about it. Yeah. Oh right? yeah. I mean, you're changing. Uh, we thought, okay, this this is going to wake everyone up up to the potential that we've talked about forever, this untapped potential that you're missing out on. I don't care. I used to say, I don't care where you fall on the spectrum of love, hate, women's sports. There's all this money you're leaving on the table. You want to tap into it. You should get on board, right? Small investment, large return. And, and, 
And yet it still didn't because you're having to change mindsets. There's just a cultural shift that takes so much longer. It's generational. And I think, I mean, Julie, wouldn't you agree that, that there've been a lot of male executives who were willing to leave the money on the table? Yeah. Although I will say it took really the change for us was finding the male executives that had the vision to go. And thankfully they were in a position of power. When you find those, you know, guys that go, Oh, I get that. Yeah. I get that we're missing. This could be a lot bigger Then things yeah. started to change. But yeah, yeah. I think they, they don't wake up every day going, Hey, what can I do to help here? They don't do they, they don't care. Well, I think that they really do. Like I, I remember one conversation I had with a really good editor at Sports Illustrated, good guy, smart guy. And I said, um, I think I was trying to to pitch a cover story on Jackie Joyner Kersey when she was winning gold medals and all that stuff. And he said, hey, look, if it's if it's a choice between Jackie Joyner Kersey and Michael Jordan, we're going to do Michael Jordan every time. And I said, but it's not a choice. Like it's not either or like you can do both of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I really, I really think there was this mindset that, um, and still there's some of that persists, that literally that any resource or attention devoted to women's sports inherently comes at the expense of men and men's sports. That is a, that is yeah. a very, very deeply embedded fear. For sure. And I think even Mark Emmert, if you look at the NCAA report on NCAA resources and how they were devo devoted to men's and women's sports, um, yeah. how the contracts were written, all of the only way to explain that sort of um, financial mismanagement, I guess, or um, or malfeasance, whatever you want to call it, is is if you suddenly insert it into that framework of fear that somehow this is going to come at the, that a, that a gigantic women's right. final four basketball event will somehow take away right. something from men. And I, and I, well, I really and think his, that's without being sounding like is, a sore head. Yeah. History has yeah. shown that all over the world in England, when women started playing, when the men were off at world war two, they were attracting huge crowds and they banned women's football. They banned it in Brazil. They banned it in all these countries in Spain and, and didn't allow women to play until like, in, in Europe until I, I think in some countries, I think England was like the seventies or something crazy. It was, it was late. Um, yeah. so yeah. Cause they were worried that it would, you know, when the men came back, they wouldn't have the same, you know, attendance crowd, all of that. And by the way, there, there might be some truth to it because if, if, um, if there's a separate contract TV contract negotiated for the women's basketball tournament, NCAA tournament, which is probably going to happen now, uh, a lot of women coaches are in favor of negotiating a separate, a lot of their conference contracts and their NCAA, um, their, their tournament contracts are up for renegotiation. If they separate out, guess what? There will be fewer resources yeah. for, for some, for some men. Yeah. Yeah. But I still think there's so much room at that table in this space. Oh. There's so much well, I mean, money there. There's so many places that need content. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's so. the new world. It's not just linear anymore. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk Pat Summit and your relationship mm -hmm. with Pat. And you're, I, you've written how many books? Twelve. What's the number? <laughs> Two good ones. <laughs> Two good ones. <laughs> no. How many books total? Twelve. You have a dozen at I least. I think it's twelve. Yeah. It, and 12. you have a book coming out in June, which we're going to talk about. I do. About. That's I awesome. I have a book coming I, out in June. I got yeah. all excited. I was like, yes. That's a good book. The book coming out in June is one of the. I, I might have to raise my total of good books to three. Oh, it's called The Right Call. What sports mm -hmm. teach teach us about work and life. Okay, yay. Yeah. Can't wait. That's yeah. awesome. That sounds so awesome. Heavily, the, the, the book was heavily influenced by Pat, really. It's, it's oh. a book about how athletes and coaches make tough calls in the moment. Hmm. And how much, you know, the $64,000 question for all of us in the audience, um, you know, for a Sally Jenkins watching a Julie Foudy compete or a Pat Summit coach is – what can I, can I really learn something from what they do or can I just admire it from afar? Is it this sort of unattainable skill that they devoted all these years to? Um, or is there, is, is there something importable for a, a regular person on the sideline, you know, from a champion player or a champion coach? And so that's the question 
that I set out to look at. And I started thinking really seriously about all the stuff I learned from Pat just sitting on the sideline, mm. all the stuff I learned from watching you guys, you know, uh, in, in World Cups and, and Olympics, you know, winning and losing. Um, and it's just I've been kind of taking quiet notes on that subject. What's exportable? You know, what's importable for right. us? And what, what can you guys really export to the rest of us that's usable? Um, and it's not just hero worship and and awe, uh, you know. And um, so that's what the book is about. What can we use? You know, can you give us just like a little hint sure. of what you're finding, yeah. please? <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm on the edge of my seat. You got me. I'm in. You'll know this better than anybody in the world. You know, great athletes and great coaches are, are creatures of such routine mm-hmm. um, and such habit. You know, and and not just practice habits, but like really, really highly organized days and nights. And the fact of the matter is that I talked to a really fascinating guy named Dana Cavalea, who was the performance coach for the New York Yankees for a lot of years. And he basically, he told me Derek Jeter went to bed at the same time every night in season, no matter what town he was in, no matter how late they played, he did the same thing every single day. And he said, those are the guys who set the all-time records. You know, um, their habits are really, really, really ingrained and embedded. And and he also coaches CEOs now. This guy Dana works with a lot of you know entrepreneurs and um, executives with companies. And their habit, those guys' habits are all over the map, oh. all over the map. You know, they're they're eating at irregular hours. Uh-huh. They're um, you know smoking cohibas and having you know ha- drinking a little too much to sort of take some of the pressure off at night. And the fact of the matter is that really good decision making is based in routine and regimentation. Hmm. And good decisions accrue just like good performances accrue and stem from really, really regular habits and regular conduct. And none of us wants to hear that necessarily uh, because, you know, we want another glass of red wine or we want to have dessert with dinner or we want to stay up a little late. I mean, really, really good CEOs understand that you have to train now to make good decisions. You can't be Hmm. some chain smoking, martini drinking, um, you know, exhausted burnout case and still and make good judgments in this fast moving world. So that's one thing that you can import is like, I mean, it's really changed how I write, you know. Oh, how so? Well, I mean, you know, you don't do stupid things like drink a Coca-Cola and eat a glazed donut and think you're going to be doing anything smart at a typewriter yeah. or a laptop. Maybe it that's, kills your that's sugar that's... just sugar absolutely kills your thinking. Writing is a stamina exercise like anything else. You need at least two hours at a at a laptop or sometimes you only get 90 minutes on deadline. But you, you truly you're doing sustained thinking over over a couple of hours to write something decent. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you're drinking a Coke and eating a donut, Jenks. You're just, you're going to crap. You're going to crater. Jenks, shit, I could have been something because I lived on donuts. Let me tell you. So this was my problem. Why did this book come out before I was an athlete? Because <laughs> okay, I could have actually scored some goals. I would have been lethal for more than six inches. Think about it. Think of what I could have been. Seriously, though, Julie, what, like... You guys wouldn't eat a bunch of junk food and go out and try no. to win a World Cup, right? No, but we would sneak in donuts for sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I'm not a... No, you know, I mean, I, the the thing I look at when I see, like, today's... Um, the way, like, athletes are so mindful of... You know, even, like, the U.S. team, after they train, each player has their own nutrition drink, protein shake, whatever they their needs are personalized to them. I'm like... Oh my gosh, we never had that. I would have loved that stuff. I mean, you, yeah. you can definitely go over the top on it as well in terms of it's too much analysis and too much data. Um, but yes, it's it's. Uh, I think it makes a huge difference. Um, did you know that like chess players can burn, you know, like calories just sitting over a board? Like your brain robs your muscles of the energy to think. And so chess players, they've documented chess players suffer incredible metabolic rates sitting over world-class chess players will sit there in a match for like five, six hours and they burn thousands of calories Wow! because your brain is trumping your muscles. So chess players, you don't see any unfit chess players anymore. Like those guys have learned the hard way too. Like, like Magnus Carlsen, the number one player in the world, like he trains at the Norwegian Olympic training center. He's really physically fit. That is fascinating. Fascinating. I did not know that. Jinx. So that's in the book. 
that's in the book. And I mean, the, the, the fun thing is the stories are all told through personal experiences with athletes or personal stories. I had a, a good, fun conversation with Steve Kerr uh, from the Golden State Warriors. So, um, so it's not just some knucklehead sports writer talking. I mean, this is stuff, it's coming from them. I'm not sure anyone would ever describe you as a knucklehead sports writer. <laughs> well, but still, I mean, you know, my thoughts on something are, aren't, you know, yeah. uh, you're only as good as your material. And that's so true. Guys like Steve Kerr and Diana Nyad and Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning was great. He gave me a lot of time and a lot of mm -hmm. insights. Yeah. Uh, and those, and are, so, so those think, are humans that think at a deep, deep level, too. Steve yeah. Kerr, I love. Uh, anytime he hits a mic, I'm like, shh. Steve Kerr is there's a Yeah, there's a reason why he's as good at, at yeah. TV as he is at, I mean, he works at it, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, that's one insight in the book is, you know, athletes really hate the idea that they were sort of fortunately kissed with mm. innate talent. Um, mm. I mean, that just doesn't get you a third of the way. Yeah. Talent gets you one third of the way. Totally. Yeah. That's my conversation with my kids weekly. Yeah. Yeah. Really? What are you, what are you talking with them about? Well, there's... There's so many people that are really great at what they do. Skills, right? But it's it's not, like if I looked at the national team, there's so many really good athletes. What makes you great? What's the, the, what's the separation from that? Really good to great. That's not something that's like, I got to lift more. I got to run faster. I've got to, you know, it, it's, it's, it's here or it's here too. So I'm pointing to my head and. I forget this is audio only. <laughs> Julie, I bet I bet you'll agree with this. Like part of it is it's it's in here because the the real difference between good and great is um you know athletes are willing to champion athletes are willing to work at the things they do worst. Yeah. Right? The rest of us work we like to work at things that make us feel good. Like yeah. you know, if you have a good forehand, you love to work on your forehand. NBA players, great World Cup soccer players, spend inordinate hours working on their non-dominant foot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. We had a phrase on the national their, team. Their non-dominant hand. Thanks to Dr. Colin Hacker called. What's that? We had a phrase on the national team, to your point, thanks to Dr. Colin Hacker, who worked with our team, mm -hmm. called wholesome discontent. And I would argue that the Mia Hams, the Michael Jordans, the Serena Williams there's a lot of discontent and they fear this failure that just drives them all the time to be the very best. I mean, a lot of people can go to the flip side of that, right? Where it becomes something that's a detriment, but they've channeled that in a way where that fear of failure, this discontent becomes a wholesome discontent, which is driving them to the next level. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, there's also, there's something that happens to anyone who gets a little bit of success, even mildly, mildly successful people. Um, you stop learning and, and athletes are really good at not doing that. Athletes are not vain in some really interesting yeah. way. Like a Serena Williams is willing to have a coach come in and go, you know, you have a real flaw um, yeah. on your backhand slice yeah. and you still have time it. Peyton Manning was always trying to fix things. Tom Brady, Tom Brady threw, he found a way to throw with like seven more RPMs on the ball. I mean, his completion rate went up at the end of his yeah. career instead of down. Uh, he was throwing yeah. the ball at a higher velocity in his 40s yeah. than he was yeah. in his 30s because, yeah, he constantly had, was looking for um, coaches who would pick holes in him. It's why he was able to play for Belichick for as long as he did without getting more unhappy. Um, so yeah. those people have a really, really interesting ability. Um, it's not just fear of failure. It's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a willingness to undergo embarrassment mm -hmm. uh, for lack of a better word, or a wound to the vanity in order to, to mm -hmm. find and cure a weakness because a lot of us have undiagnosed weaknesses. Jeff Bezos, the, you know, founder of, Amazon has, has a really great quote in the book where he says, you know, he said, you can be really, really good at something and have whole areas of incompetence you're not even aware of. Mm -hmm. So you have to be willing to expose yourself to analysis. Whether you're a writer who lets an editor tell her, you got to do that again, it's not your best work. Yeah. Or you're an athlete who lets a coach say, you've been walking around for years, which Martina Navratilova did with Billie Jean King, 
she won her ninth Wimbledon because she had the guts to ask Billie Jean King to coach her. And Billie Jean said, here's your weaknesses and everybody knows them. And you've been able to sort of play through them because you're so talented. But if you want to win a ninth Wimbledon at, you know, 36 years old, you're going to have to fix a couple of those things. And and surrounding yourself with people that will tell you that, right? Yeah. Seeking them out. Yeah. Like you, like you pointed out. Okay. Most pressing questions, favorite book or article you've ever written? That I've ever written? Yes. Okay. Favorite book I've ever written. Uh, well, the, the forthcoming, The Right Call, which is coming out in June, is one of them. Second favorite would be The Real All-Americans, which is a mm-hmm. true story about the Carlisle Indian School yep. and how they really pioneered the forward pr- pass and the great trick plays that you see in the NFL today. Yeah. Um, the Indian school, they had to play the Ivy League powers at the time and they weren't big enough, you know, to really play hmm. like, you know, nose to nose football. And so they invented all the trick plays that you see today at the Carlisle no Indian School. And they ended up they ended up uh, becoming a great uh, football power in their own right when Jim Thorpe was in the backfield. That's so cool. cool. Next question. Favorite sports event to cover? Well, I mean. The Olympic figure skating, I have to say, um, is, I mean, if you think about it, it's really the most pressure packed four minutes in in all of sports because you know, you basically you've worked four years, you know, to skate um, in this one final long routine where you have to land like all these acrobatic um, jumps on a blade the width of a butcher knife on ice. I mean, find me something harder to do on this planet. I mean, they're the greatest athletes I ever covered. Those guys, Brian Boitano, uh, Katerina Vitt, uh, Gordieva and Grinkov, the great Russians, you know, right up to today, uh, to today's generation with their quads. You know, um, Ilya, this kid, Ilya is incredible. I mean, so I uh, figure skating just because it, it's just it's an incredible feat. Yeah, they're all doing quads now too. Right? Yeah, all the quads. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. High, low, cheer. So <laughs> it's the high. This I used to do around the dinner table with my kids. Mm-hmm. High mm-hmm. of your career, it would be their day. High of your career, low of your career, and the cheer is for someone who you're grateful for, who's helped you along the way. Okay. Um, high of my career. Um, Oh, I mean, honestly, you know, getting employed at the Washington Post, you know, it's been my home. My, I'll never forget the first day I walked in there, you know, it was like that Mary, remember the old Mary Tyler Moore show where she yeah. throws her cap up in the air? You know, I mean, it's take any silly sitcom um, mm-hmm. scene, but, you know, just walking in the bill, I still get, I still get tickled walking in the building. It's just, it's a great institution yeah. full of great people. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's, it's weird, but like, I've had like a 35 year high, uh, working for the Washington post. <laughs> wow. Um, the low point would be, I left sports illustrated to go over to Condé Nast and help launch a sports magazine for women that lasted about three years and it, oh, it yeah. failed or they closed it. Um, it was before it's time, was it? probably what a little was the premature. Name of it, again? it was called sports for women. I had a really great time doing it. You know, that that part was a real uh, pleasure. But then the, the the day the doors closed, that was kind of, that was tough. But fortunately, I had a soft landing back at the Washington Post. Yeah. So um, those are highs and lows, I guess. And then what's the cheer? Cheer. For somebody who really, I mean. That you're grateful for. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bundle Billie Jean King and Pat Summit together because they're peers and, uh, you know, I was a pretty unformed young person when I was exposed to the two of them. Um, and I mean, it's just the the impact is remarkable. And so, I mean, I'll never forget, I was interviewing Chris Everett and um, and she said, you've talked to Billie Jean. And I said, yeah. And she said, changes your life, doesn't she? And I looked at Chrissy and I said, yes, she does. And I mean, she changed Chrissy's too. And and Pat was the same. I mean, I, I just really learned so much uh, about you know, how to be a professional woman from both of them and how to be your own professional woman and how to not be afraid of consequences and bet on yourself and and go all in. You know, Pat taught, Pat always said most people are afraid to to keep score, you know, because they're afraid of saying that's the best I can do. And I think that's very true. I think a lot of people are afraid 
to really commit with their whole hearts because if you if, if you don't get what you want, then you go, oh, I failed. Yeah, you know, yeah I didn't that, get that. that sucks. Yeah, it does suck, right? Um, I mean, losing Julie, you you told me the the loss, the losses you guys took, it, like in some ways, stay with you longer than the gold oh, medals, yeah, right? Always, and they become so, the drivers uh, though for the highs. The lows become yeah. the highs. Yeah. So, um, but Pat was great. What Pat Summit taught was um, going all in is is uh, worth it. You know, like commit, how to commit to your career. And, um, you know, she, Billie Jean and her both asked a lot of questions, right? What do you really want? They were both always asking me, what do you want? What do you want to do? What do you really want to do with yourself? What do you want to do with yeah. your career? What do you want to do in writing? What book do you want to write? And it's like, you were almost ashamed then not to write a book. <laughs> you had to deliver. <laughs> I better write a book. You know, I better write a book because Billie Jean King and Pat Summit keep asking me, you know, <laughs> when are you going to write a book? You're like, shit, I, I gotta better write, write a book. One. <laughs> and not, be only good. Gonna, not only am I going to write one book, I'm going to write 12. Yeah. And they better be good, but you know, they better be all right too. They better be decent. So, anyway, so, so beyond wanting Billy. to impress your dad, you also had Billy and Pat, it sounds what a like, gift. as well as those gifts. Well, I mean, because Billy and Pat could talk to me about things. My dad was great for a lot, but my dad wasn't going to be able to help me with being a woman in a man's yeah. business and yeah. a woman in a man's world. Yeah. And Billy and Pat, they gave me that. Yeah. Damn. Mm. I think you used it. Um, I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. Your line was, I loved this too. Uh, it was MIT's first female president, Susan Hockfield, once called it the quiet oppression of impossibility and learning mm -hmm. that mm. you can move beyond that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. And you know who was great too is Nora Ephron, the late yeah. Nora Ephron, who, uh, who uh, I only I didn't I only knew slightly, but I knew her just well enough to have a couple of good conversations with. And you know, Nora had a great quote, and um, she said, "You know, be the hero of your own life, not the victim." Yeah, I have that and, as one um, of the things you quoted in the in the yeah. in the women's soccer article. And so, so Billy and Pat, Billie Jean King and Pat Summit both are very much in the same vein, which is grievance is not good, right? Action is good. You have to turn grievance into something more than complaining. Sally Jenkins, you talk about all these gifts in your life. You, my friend, are a gift in all of us. So, yeah. Uh, it's been such a such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Well, I can't we can't wrap this up without my saying, I mean, I mean, figure skating great, but I honestly covering Julie and Mia, those teams real highlight. Uh, I have to say. Uh, yeah. They stick those those games really stuck with me after all this time. You know, mm. yeah, that's that's a that's a top of the list, Jules. Thanks, darling. Yeah. Most not, not the least because you guys were so much fun off the field. Yeah. <laughs> Most athletes do. are pretty tedious and boring people we, off the field. We are a lot of fun. Um, yeah. What I am most appreciative of is that I've had the privilege of being able to to watch you in action and and live some of these journeys with you. So. Uh, I just think you're you really are such a gift, and I I hope you never stop writing and never stop well, sharing you. your wisdom because it's so important, and it and it makes such a difference because people read that stuff and their minds are changed because of your words. So thanks for sometimes all you do. I hope. No, sometimes I hope. all the time. It's been it's been fun growing up in this business together, hasn't it? I don't know if I could say I'm in the business as you're in the business, but <laughs> yeah, you are. I, I don't know about that, Jenks. Thanks for having me on, you guys. I love her so much. Yeah. And I just need to say, mm -hmm. she was remarkably calm and coherent for four cups of coffee. Very impressive, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Uh, question for you. What do you think would happen if you drank four cups of coffee? I've not exactly. seen it. I've not seen it. I've seen two cups of coffee, Julie. What about four <laughs> cups? I know. I know. I, I would be... You... I mean, I'm already annoying as hell to begin with on a, a no, cup and a half. No, 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 no not annoying no. at all. I mean, can you imagine the annoyance factor to what degree at four cups? And she was so like, like she was coherent. I, I wouldn't be able to talk. I'd be slobbering, <laughs> drooling. 
I'd be screaming a lot. Zoom would be trying to mute me. It'd be ugly. I, okay, I think we just came up with our next podcast episode. It's just Julianne four cups of coffee, and that's it. No guest. Just hit record, put you in the wild, and see what happens. I was playing golf with Mia Ham yesterday. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, what? I'm sorry. Who were you playing golf with yesterday? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't mean that as a name drop, but I. I was just trying. It's to a spectacular make it one. Clear. No, own own it. So. Mia and Tish and I were playing golf for um, the LPGA program there in Palos Verdes. And um, I get really animated in golf because I never play. And I know this is a complete shock. So I might scream a lot in programs when I'm, you know, golf etiquette Amazing. is like, I, oh. golf etiquette is like the worst. They want you quiet. They want you to shut up. They want you to like golf clap. Like, right. I'm like, no. So it goes against when they nature. like, it goes against my nature. And so <laughs> when Nellie Corda, who's a total rock star, yeah. and, you know, like number one in the world, yeah. was was our um, our pro golfer on the oh, first nine. And they do this off the tee box. They're like, you know, winner of eight LPGA titles, blah, 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 yeah. Nellie Corda. And there's not many people around, but we just go crazy. We're like, wow, Nellie! Nellie! And she... She had no idea we were like that. And Mia's whooping and hollering and Tish is yelling. And she goes, this is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, the fun factor! (laughs) And and Mia said after the round, she said at least seven people on the course asked me, is she always like this? (laughs) (laughs) Meaning, I go... "Um, Is the she you're referring to me? (laughs) She's like, "Uh, yeah. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And Mia goes, Mia goes, her whole life, and we've had to endure it. You know what? You know what, Julie? I've never shared this with you because it's really just never come up. People ask me that too. <laughs> she always like she that? always like this. Yeah, but usually it's yeah. in a really positive way. Like, is she always like that? So yeah, so it's it's usually it's a positive is it? slant. It is. Is it okay? <laughs> I'm not sure Mia's was. I was like, huh. Well, she's she's had to endure a little bit longer than I have, in all fairness. <laughs> all right. Uh, Takeaways from Sally. Lynn. Yeah. You know, I've not really talked much about this on the podcast, but I went to graduate school at Northwestern. I have my master's in broadcast journalism, and it was one of the best experiences of my life. I loved journalism school. And this episode with Sally... It felt like I was back in journalism school. Mm-hmm. I could have listened to her talk her craft all day. Mm-hmm. And when she talked about putting your fingerprint on a story and saying that to young reporters, it's the lesson of having confidence in yourself and, and belief and in, in that mm-hmm. you are the person to tell the story, even if it's been told so many times before. So I just really soaked up. Mm-hmm. The time we got to spend with Sally. And trusting those instincts. A it's great huge. reminder indeed. Yeah. Uh, my takeaway was I absolutely loved her discussion about praise and blame. But the real hard part of journalism is to diagnose and distinguish. Um, and then when her dad... Dan Jenkins, who is also a Hall of Fame sports writer, uh, he passed in 2019. He said to her, look at the prevailing opinion. And he's basically saying, look at the mainstream thinking on any issue and then flip it. Look at the dead opposite and ask yourself if there isn't something smarter in the opposite point of view. Amazing. And yeah. And when she talked about there often is. And she said that is the really hard work because you have to become dispassionate to do so. I loved that because I feel... That in our world today, we're just so quick mm-hmm. to jump to our own judgment, knee-jerk reactions, and we're absolutely unwilling to listen to that other side. We just yell out our side even louder and keep yelling. And so sure. that, for me, was another great reminder, even myself. Like, yeah, you got to stop and, as we always talk about, put yourself in someone else's shoes and try and understand it from from their walk and their journey. So I think if we all did that, this world would be a much better place. So mm-hmm. thank you for that, Jenks. Questions permitted. 
So this is a Lynn question, and I think it's just wanting to share with our dope village what it's like to be in the trenches with someone at an event like the Olympics. And maybe if you could just describe what that experience is like when you're covering an extended event like that and how at the end of it, you be, you kind of become lifelong friends with the people around yeah. you. The, there's so much energy and work and passion that goes into covering the Olympics because it's just chaos. It's craziness for three weeks solid and you're running, you're running to events, you're running to different sports, you're running to covering things. And I've, I've uh, been lucky enough to cover it both with ESPN and NBC, NBC with just the, no, that's not, not true that NBC is just the soccer side because I was actually my first gig was with NBC as a reporter. I told them I didn't want to do the soccer. Um, I wanted to do, to learn how to write stories and do stories. Um, and so, but it's it's this it's it's so much fun and there's so much adrenaline, but it's exhausting because yeah. you don't stop. Right, you're not getting a lot of sleep as we talked about, and um, there's just so many things you have to cover, and there's you know, there's not a ton of you there. And so you end up having this incredible bonding experience and riding together late into the hours. It's very similar kind of to that national team bonding experience where you go through and put so much sweat equity into something as players. Um, it's the closest thing I've come to that, yeah. I think, is having that kind of experience with and I and mostly I, I love to hang out with the Washington Post writers, a lot of the writers because they're just so fun and smart and interesting. So I spend a lot of time with the Post writers at Olympics. Yeah, when you are in the trenches with someone with a group for that long, that fifteen years later you can still talk about it, and it's like, oh my gosh, can you believe yeah. we did that together? <laughs> and all the f hijinks yeah. and fun you have along the way. Yeah. And that, you know, you're really looking out for each other mm. throughout these Olympics. I mean, mm. that's that's the other thing is is there's a real um, human, human side to it, the yeah. humanity of it all in terms of um, that you, you got as a player when you were teammates with people. But now this is like your kind of collective team. And it's really cool. Yeah. Cool. I love that you expanded on that. That's it. All right, party people. That does it for us this week. Oh, and if you haven't listened to Christine Sinclair's episode yet, um, you should. I uh, she's you know only the uh, best goal scoring soccer player in the history of soccer. Uh, she's Canadian. Don't hold that against her. Um, but she she uh, says and reveals something in this episode. And Christine is a very very um, private person, and I. I find myself like cackling out loud, Lynn, when I think about her her reveal. Her reveal, it's at the t <laughs> yeah, her reveal, and it's at the top of the episode. You should you should just go check it out. Yeah. That's all I'm gonna say. You're welcome. Should we also mention the Lynn game, or just let people experience that for themselves? Yeah, too? no, we should not mention the Lynn game, okay. but we should mention. Um, <laughs> I don't even. I mean, I'm so over the Lynn game. Um, and then we should mention. Next <laughs> next week's episode, which is episode number one hundred and three, one hundred and three is fittingly with one hundred and three year old Sister Jean. Boom! Oh yes, as in Sister Jean, the chaplain of Loyola University's men's basketball program. You may remember she was the nun who became a global rock star when Loyola made that run to the men's final four, that Cinderella run in 2018. Well, she's written a book about what she has learned from her first hundred years. It's so cute. I love her. And we spoke to her from her office on the Loyola campus, which she still goes to five days a week. Oh my, oh my girl. Oh Ah, you don't want to miss that one. All right. Thank you, our dope village, for spending your time with us. Let us know what you love, what you don't love. We will look at all sides as Jenks, as in Sally Jenkins, taught us. And be sure to spread the good word about our podcast to your dope villages. We greatly appreciate that. Thank you, as always, to Ally and Dick Sporting Goods for their fabulous support. And, of course... 
to Kate Diaz, who wrote and composed our theme music. And remember, as always, kids, sing it with us. Laughter permitted. This is where, you know, the spell happens. Hey Dope Village, the Baseball Tonight podcast with Buster Olney is three days a week bringing you great guests like Mike Trout, top managers like Dave Roberts, to the insights of the general managers like Brian Cashman, along with regulars, of course, such as Tim Kirchin, Jeff Passan, Sarah Lang, and Carl Ravitch. That's the Baseball Tonight podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.